I'm so excited to be joined this evening by my co-host, Dr. Robert Malone, a man who needs no introduction. And uh, our guest tonight is Dr. Chris Martinson. Uh, I would imagine most people know who you are, Dr. Martinson, but for those of you who don't, uh, Dr. Chris Martinson has a PhD from Duke University in pathology and is, uh, he's, he has an MBA from Cornell, and you uh, have been a scientist for over, it says over seven years, but I think it's been a lot longer than that. Um, would you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about your background, and then let's, let's dive into the exciting topic of the World Economic Forum. There's a lot going on around that. Just, just a little bit. Well, thank you, Laura. <laughs> it's great to be here with you and all listeners and uh, Roberts. Uh, just a real pleasure. So my background... Um, you know, I, I did the science thing for a while. Um, I did a postdoc and you know, got some papers published and, and learned science. I decided uh, to go off in a slightly different direction than hard science because, as I like to say, I'm a quick learner eventually. It took me forever to figure out that college and university was not about teaching. And I was, I considered, my, I wanted to get into, I like teaching. I like science too, but I found the game was not what I thought it was. So uh, I went off and I worked for a while in India, three years at Pfizer at the Groton facility doing corporate finance there, helping the drug development people spend a lot of money um, and uh, left that and then went and uh, worked at another company called SEIC for a period of time, uh, mostly consulting back to the pharma business, doing um, IT and basic uh, strategy consulting. And then starting about 2006, seven, I started my own website blog and became uh, known for this thing called the crash course and started peak prosperity, but it's, it's fundamental thing is that I am an independent researcher and analyst and thinker. And so for the past 15 years or so, I've been fortunate to be supported by my followers and been able to do what I do, which is um, analyze things, think about things and communicate things without any outside undue influence. So uh, it's just my, my real pleasure to have um, you know, been in the right place at the right time, as it were, to be able to use my skills to help people understand what was going on with COVID. Although my, my normal milieus. I talk about resources, oil, energy, and things like that that actually um, can come into in, uh, influence the economic system. So the Davos crowd, our subject tonight, I believe are looking at the directly that there's a resource issue and they're, how they're going about it is all wrong. So I can't wait to hear uh, what Robert has to say about that. Right. Well, um, I can't wait to talk to both of you guys about this because obviously you're both a wealth of knowledge and experience when it comes to this. Let's, I guess let's just dive into it. I saw um, former Prime Minister Tony Blair saying at the World Economic Forum that he believes that there should be a global database of people that are vaccinated. I don't know who wants to take that first, you or, or Chris or, or Robert. Uh, Chris, um, I'm, I'm glad to field it unless you have a desire to. Why don't you start? I have a follow-up, I'm sure. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, Tony Blair, um, uh, the, the observation is, uh, um, I think, has he gone mad? Uh, um, the, the logic, so the, let, just, just take a moment to examine the underpinning logic. The belief system is all in that vaccines prevent the spread of infectious disease. And uh, that's, that's just not the case. Um, they have utility in some cases, like all medicines, they have toxicity, and uh, they are not a universal panacea. The, this obsession with vaccination 
I find fascinating as someone who has uh, been in the industry pretty much career. Uh, it it's um, it's become a religion, I, and it seems to no longer be grounded in um, a rational assessment of uh, scientific and medical facts. It it uh, it seems to also be a surrogate for other aspects that I suspect Chris can amplify on uh, quite well, having to do with other more political agendas rather than true public health agendas. I think it was Nigel Farage, by the way, who, who made the comment that um, Tony Blair has gone mad. Um, <laughs> uh, Chris, you want to you follow up on that? Sure. So I, I have to confess, um, I have a little bias here because Tony Blair is one of my least favorite human beings. Uh, I consider him, I have a long memory for certain things, and I consider his conduct around the Iraq war to be um, permanently should exclude him from public spheres forever. Uh, and it's a very strong opinion, but he, he conducted himself poorly throughout that whole adventure. So I don't think much of him, but he, when he does get trotted out, he comes out ever in favor of sort of globalist, big sort of solutions. So no surprise to hear him saying, what we need is this global vaccine passport, leaving aside all my other condemnations of this guy. Uh, I think that this idea alone on its surface is something that is obviously unethical. The idea that you're going to compel people is a condition of their freedom to travel, to assemble, to conduct life, to have a job, compel them to take a vaccine, but then also the, of absolving yourself and the associated companies from any and all liabilities, and then gaslight the people who will inevitably, some, some number of them will be injured, and uh, prevent them from, from receiving any sort of recompense. This is the height of unethical behavior. So no surprise that they got a guy like Tony to gleefully I don't know if anybody watched the clip, but he is just excited. Like his face is really, he's really alive. I, I with... saw that. It was amazing, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like right up Casting Central. If only he rubbed his hands and licked his lips a few more times. You know, he was, he was really gleeful about this idea of saying, hey, you know, what would be really cool is if we could track people and compel them to do this thing and we'll make a ton of money. They'll take all the risk. This will be swell. So uh, I, I really did not receive that, that particular message well, but a lot of people didn't. So uh, I was glad to see that too. Well, let's talk about the dangers of that for a second. If I, I know you both have some pretty strong opinions, as do I. Um, the dangers of developing this this global tracking database. I think we can all agree, much like Dr. Malone just said, that the, the, there's so many known dangers now with these vaccines um, that the, the risk far outweighs the benefit. In addition to that, we can all agree that even if you're vaccinated, it doesn't stop the acquisition or transmission of the virus. So set all that aside just this whole concept uh, that, that at the World Economic Forum, they're openly discussing these, these global databases as mechanisms of tracking individuals and what, what kind of a slippery slope that is and how that could be used. I think I'll start with, I'll start with Grace and then, and then Robert will turn it over to you. Well, let's leave aside the moment that there may well be a future moment as an effective vaccine and there's a really bad pathogen. Um, you know, so uh, I don't want to just constrain this conversation around the fact that I don't like these digital passports because this happens to be a really leaky, poor vaccine with a terrible risk benefit profile. Leaving that, you know, it can't be just about that. You, the larger sweep of what Davos crowd has been around, of which this vaccine passport is now a sliver, it's a component of a verge wheel that includes this whole idea of a digital environment where you have a digital ID and there's central bank digital currencies and there's digital passports. And so they're really uh, very, very interested in finding ways to control everybody and, and uh, get everybody enmeshed in this, in this digital environment. Now, if, we, if I'd said that just five years ago, 
everybody would have dropped off. What a nut, right? But as of today, <laughs> you can go to the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System, and they're very excitedly talking about their pilot program, meaning they are way past development in R&D. Their pilot program for their central bank digital currency, where they are now actively testing payment messaging cross cross bank systems. So this thing's on a platform. We have 16 total central banks in the world that are now actively going down this central bank digital currency way uh, path. And by the way, these central bank digital currencies are fundamentally a political issue because of what's possible with them. So it's possible for a company to pay you in a central bank digital currency, but say, Laura, we don't want you buying pizza with pineapple on it anymore. And that those will be, you know, transactions that will no longer be um, permitted with that currency for that use. There's all kinds of intrusions. And if COVID taught us anything, when you give bureaucrats an opportunity to intrude, they just stampede right in there. And it's it's just, it's hell to pay to try and get those, get back what they've just sort of just assumed is control. Mm-hmm. So this is a, this is a big deal. It's a really big deal. Um, and I don't think people can, are, are really taking serious the, how far down the road we are with implementing this type of government control and and global government control into the individual life. Robert, what are your thoughts on Tony Blair? So, well, uh, I, I was, yeah, so um, good lead in. I was expecting Chris to go even further down the road because I know he can in a very eloquent fashion. Um, maybe he's holding back, um, just like from time to time I hold back on scientific issues because I don't want to be um, perceived as a uh, crazy-eyed wild man. Um, but maybe I have the liberty of going a little further down the rabbit hole economically because I'm not an expert that makes me living there. We saw the deployment of basically a prototype uh, social credit system applied to central a digital central currency type environment with uh, Justin Trudeau and Friedland's decision to block uh, outside um, investment or, or donations coming through a variety of channels to the Canadian truckers and block their ability to access their own bank accounts for the sin of parking their trucks and honking their horns. Um, this a decision on the basis of these two, neither of which have a solid background in finance. I suspect that run circles around both any day of the week. Uh, they almost crashed the Canadian banking system because people suddenly became aware that um, what they had believed to be safe harbor in Canada no longer was. Mm-hmm. And so international currency started fleeing out of the Canadian banking structure and TD Bank, et cetera. And it was essentially the bankers that put the check reins on Trudeau and Freeland. But the cat was out of the bag. We've now seen this in action. We now see that a central bank digital currency coupled with social credit system, and of course, ESG at the larger level, environmental social governance, is the future that they anticipate for us. And as been noted in both uh, WEF planning documents and uh, throughout the those of us that are eight that have been tracking all this, the cascade appears to be the utilization of vaccine passports as a wedge to drive an initial commitment to universal IDs that will then be 
coupled to central bank digency with the features that was that were described, uh, which will then be coupled to social credit systems in which your ability to make decisions about how far you can build, for instance, um, what your allow allotted carbon credit uh, score is, uh, what your uh, potential food uh, supply might be, um, whether or not you will be constrained to 15-minute city life. Uh, it goes on and on and on in terms of their planning, which seems the WEF's planning seems to be centered around the logic that if we only had enough data on every single person in the world and the related industrial activity, then we could make a command economy work. Then we could optimize the world based on utilitarian principles. Then we could mitigate the risk of scarce resources and uh, manage a uh, Malthusianism based uh, um, political economy. The, the logic is basically, to be blunt, that the reason why Marxism has not worked in the past is we haven't had good enough data and good enough machines to process it and predict from it. And if we only had that, then centralized planned economies could work. We've seen there in action over the last three years. If you, if you like what you've been subjected to here, in particularly in the Five Eyes Alliance countries, that being Great Britain, Canada, U.S., New Zealand, and Australia. Strange how those are all the most uh, totalitarian, uh, authoritarian responses to the COVID crisis worldwide. They all are members of the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance, and and they seem to be at the tip of the spear in attempting to implement these new globalist policies envisioned by this organization that's really a trade organization of the thousand largest companies in the world, unelected, that truly believes that it is the, um, it, it, it has the necessary qualifications, mission, and authorization to serve as a global government. It, it truly believes that the independent nation state, autonomous nation state, is an obsolete concept that is driving the world to ecological and financial and resource ruin. That's, mm -hmm. that's the world we're in. And that's the world that they wish to foster. I had a fascinating conversation. It's just one of these things. It's kind of bizarre um, these days. I've known well enough that people sit down and talk to me. And in this case, I'm sitting in, in a uh, airport lounge, Lufthansa lounge in um, Germany, uh, awaiting my next flight and uh, down sits the chairman of the board of the law company in Sweden and his wife. And we begin chatting and uh, we start talking about ESG. And he said, I'm not letting my company have anything to do with this. And I'm getting called by Klaus all the time, but wow. none of this has anything to do with profit. It will destroy company and it will destroy these other companies. It is siphoning value off for things that have nothing to do with business and profit. And we are heading into a major economic turmoil period as a consequence of this and many other factors. And it's going to be a while before we get out. So, Chris, Sir, I, I, pass, I pass the baton over to you. This is your work. 
Yeah, Chris, definitely. I want to hear your take on that because I, I agree um, wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly with you, Dr. Malone. And for those people that would say the things that you just outlined seem outlandish and impossible, I would remind everyone to take a hard look at what's happened over the last two and a half, almost three years now with lockdowns. Oh, and this, this was the point, Laura. This was the point this executive, I mean, this is a very senior uh, business leader. Um, uh, his point was that no one will pay attention until they implement the digital passports and the harsh procedures, and then we'll see what people are made of. But until then, they're not going to wake up, was his point of view. Right. Well, yeah, I'd like to get your take on that, Chris, because this is this is all... This is all in, in the works right now. And people are, I think, just so unaware. Well, boom, mic drop on that. Thanks for that, uh, Rob, because, um, oh, my gosh, uh, so much to, to riff on there. So, look, I, I'm a systems guy at heart. And the issue I have with these, so, so what you're talking about, Robert, is basically the WF has decided they, they have a better mousetrap. They have a better version of the form, the old Soviet crop reports. If we could just get everything recorded, tagged and bagged and barcoded, and if let's get feed this into our AI systems, we can control all of this so they can get a better command economy. It's another version of utopia. This is a Tower of Babel story, right? But this time, maybe we get closer to God and godliness, is uh, technology. That's our tower. And they really believe this, right? You see this in, um, you know, uh, Yuval Harari's statements that basically say, we'll just reprogram the cells of life and we'll be gods and we don't need evolution anymore. I mean, these are flat out statements. And you're right. The, the, um, I think it was Klaus was just, uh, I saw two days ago. He said, yeah, you know, we, we just, you know, our vision is, you know, we, we just have stakeholder management, which is a fancy way of saying all the people like BlackRock and, you know, State Street with all the money, they're the stakeholders in this. And so basically it's a version, a better version of um, Marxism with capitalism. Like they own everything, but now it all runs through their command and control economy uh, software. Now, as a systems guy, I have great faith that complex systems have a way of defying and evading every human attempt to understand them or contain them. So my belief is that they're going to try. They're going to try real hard to put in place their ESGs and control people that and make sure, you know, people in Oxford, England are the test rats for, uh, you know, a district, a Hunger Games district style. You know, you can only drive your car 100 days out of the year style thing. All of it's based around that Methuselah idea that says there's not enough resources. You can't just be honest with people and explain that gosh, you know, there isn't enough for anybody anymore. Uh, so what do we do? Well, you, you tell people lies and they, you subtle lies and you try and contain them for their own good with the idea though, that you're going to be able to control everything that happens. And I know two things about complex systems. One, they are inherently unpredictable. And two, they owe all of their order and complexity to the fl fr flowing through of energy. And so when you watch what's happening right now, I invite everybody just pay attention the next year and a half to two years in Europe is going to be so instructive because they've just taken their energy consumption down by whole double digit percentages, like 10, 15%. That's going to increase again next year because there isn't enough LNG on the open contract basis in the world to, to top all that stuff off for next year. And we're going to find out what happens when you take a 400 million person complex economy complex ecosystem of sociology and cultural and political arrangements, a complex system and you starve it for energy. And the, the quick shorthand for that is we're gonna undergo what's called a simplification. Complex systems owe their order and their complexity to the flowing 
of energy through them. Um, and so when you starve that, things just get simpler, which is a euphemism for, wow, we're going to see my predictions very easy. Um, we're going to see uh, huge economic problems. We're going to see giant problems within the banking system, which is based on perpetual exponential growth of debt and credit instruments. We're going to see a great skinnying down of the number of job classifications and all of that simply because these people don't understand that it's not, they don't understand where prosperity actually comes from. It's probably the most dangerous thing we see with collectivists, authoritarians, Marxists, communists, whatever you want to call them. But there are people who have this dream that if, we, if our ideology could be expressed in its purest form and there were no dissenters because somehow they one dissenter makes the whole thing go bad, get everybody thinking the right way, doing the right things, then, well, we get to this promised land, right? We get to this, this great utopia. Uh, it's a deranged view. It doesn't comport with reality. We don't have any historical examples of where this has done anything, but end badly. And I'm very worried, I have to confess, about um, where this is all going in terms of our overall prosperity and, most importantly, um, our freedom and our ability to conduct our own lives and to have autonomy and to um, be happy. I've, all these things are under assault right now. It's, very, it's, it's, a, it's a big moment in history. And so that's what I took from the WEF stuff. Uh, I don't know if you saw Laura and, and Robert, but when um, John Kerry, who kind of looks like Lurch from the Adams family, right? He's got that beautiful helmet hair that I think all politicians are born with, you know? And uh, he stands up and he's like, well, you know, we're facing this existential crisis. We, the special people in this room. And, uh, but he said, I'll tell you, my whole life tells me that it's, that we solve this with money, 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 right? That's his whole framing. I don't know that he understands that money is a claim on real wealth. Money isn't an actual thing. It's a social abstraction. It has power only because we have a complex functioning economy that you can use that to help divert and, and control things happening. But I think he really believes that if we can just control all the money, we'll get whatever we want. I, I think they're that deluded. I'm, I'm quite worried, I, to be honest. I completely agree they're, they're that deluded. Um, it's a weird dichotomy of, of the messaging, too. Um, and I shouldn't say it's weird. It's certainly intentional and by design. I uh, was just listening to this other, I think his name is Adam Grant, who was speaking. And he said that on this panel, there's violent agreement that people want to work less and that we should look for ways to reduce the amount of work that people are doing. In one sense, you, you've got people like Carrie, Don Kerry saying, you know, control the money. And then you've got an, an another set, you've got these speakers talking about how uh, the workforce, they're looking for, for ways to condense and minimize the amount of work that people have to do. Um, we've got messaging up about global tracking. We've got messaging about, um, like you were saying, you know, you're going to have to uh, buy a certain type of vehicle and you can only drive that vehicle a certain amount. And of course, that, that famous statement that um, Klaus Schwab said, uh, it was by 2035, you'll own nothing and be happy about it. Yeah, can I comment on that? Well, they had a number of... Yes, please. Um, so that simple statement embodies a whole business plan, a whole economic logic. And, and people like to make fun of it, but they don't ever, under, ever comprehend what's being said. The logic there, you will own nothing and be happy. Examine that point. This is the rent-based model wherein you rent your software now. For instance, you don't buy Microsoft Office anymore. You don't buy Adobe Suites. We all understand this. You rent it on an annual basis, and they get recurring revenue from that. 
the business model is that there will be even further consolidation of ownership of all, all assets, all sources, all land, vehicle, etc. And that that ownership will be consolidated into a small number of corporations and their owners mm-hmm. who will allocate resources according to the AI that Chris was just talking about, the optimized AI that knows all and is able to allocate as necessary. So if today you need your Tesla because of doing this important work that you're doing, it requires you to commute X distance of you know, travel per week. Um, but then you no longer have that job or you're reassigned to some things. That Tesla goes back to its uh, own company. I think we're, I think we're losing you there, Robert. You're breaking Oh. Yeah, I think you're breaking up a little bit. Can oh. you hear us, Robert? I can, and it's because I'm going between there you cell go. towers. All right, we got you. We're loud and clear now. Oh, right. You will own nothing. You will own nothing and be happy is one in which everything is owned by a whole number of companies and their owners. And that's necessary for the opt- AI optimized world uh, in which your utilitarianness will be maximized. That's, that's what's behind this. They own all, and they allocate it as necessary to enable you to perform to your economic unit maximum. Over? Right. And, and, the, and I, the reality is, that, again, I, I can't stress enough that I, people I, I don't think are aware of maybe paying attention or that the signal is being blurred for people to understand that this is stuff that is, and I mean, we're seeing here in the United States, large swaths of land being purchased. Um, I think Christy Nome just uh, said that she's trying to stop China from being able to purchase uh, land in her state. Right. So, Chris, maybe talk about what what you know uh, that's being implemented or that we're already deep in that could impact um, this vision of we'll own nothing and be happy about it. Sure. Well, you know, a lot of forces at play here. Um, Again, let me let me back up one step. Um, because I do believe that there's a real problem here. There's a predicament even. It has a solution. A predicament has an outcome that we have to manage. So that predicament is, is that uh, we're at 8 billion people and trundling towards 9 or 10. And we know some things. And it's not terribly difficult math. And it does tie back into this land acquisition idea, which is that um, we're, our industrial agricultural practices are very, very good at extracting you know, maximum number of bushels per acre. But it, in the process, it converts living beautiful soil into dirt. And we're basically doing outdoor hydroponics where you have to put N, P, and K as macro fertilizer units back onto land in order for it to even like have a decent yield at all. And so uh, when we look at that and you look at where does the N come from? Well, Haber-Bosch process, a lot of natural gas, you know, it's fossil fuels. Where's the P come from? Well, phosphorus is mined really only a couple places in the world. Morocco is a big one. There's not that much left. Uh, in the K, same story, potassium. So when you look at where we really are in this story, you understand that there are some big problems coming. And I could understand why somebody who's got um, an echo chamber of technologically you know, gifted people thinking that the, the answer to this somehow is to basically run a, an enhanced China model. So it's centralized command and control. 
you have benevolent dictators, uh, you have a, a system of allocating resources, and this will all work out. The truth is, when you actually understand where we are in the resource story, we have some serious things we have to talk about. So just as an example, they trot out, yeah, they got Greta Thunberg up there, and you got Kerry and you know, all these people saying, we have to move to this fossil fuel free future. Well, this doesn't even pass like the simple crayon and napkin test when you say, okay, fine, how much copper would that require to build the, you know, the wind towers out in the ocean are nice, but you still need a fat cable to bring that power into shore. So we need copper for, we're going to need solar panels and we'll want lithium for the cars, all the electric cars, even if we're, you know, just driving on demand stuff that AI orders up for us, you still need more stuff. And when you actually go out there and ask the question, is there enough stuff? Is there enough copper ore, uh, tin, aluminum? All of these things, the answer is, well, no, but even beyond no. At current rates of copper mining production, this is a simple number to calculate. At current rates, we get X number of millions of tons out of the ground every year. At current rates, to build out the first generation of this alt-energy utopia, this clean energy fantasy future we're going to get to, at current rates of copper production, mm -hmm. it'll take 189 years to mine it out of the ground. Mm -hmm. Now, I can tell you that we use a lot of diesel in that process. And I can tell you, we do not have 189 years of fuel production coming out of our fossil fuel arena. We just, we just don't. So there's this huge disconnect between what they say they want to do and the story they're selling everybody and the actual reality of it. And it's not hard math. It's de deceptively simple math to say, can we even do that? Now, every, I said I did strategy in companies. Every company, every human being, if you have a strategy, they have these fancy names and methods but they all boil down to this very simple thing. A strategy is where am I going and how am I going to get there? Mm -hmm. What's my vision and what are our resources? Visions are easy to come by. Resources are always tight in these stories. So this is what's missing is that comprehensive story that says, listen, if we tighten our belts and we get universal basic income and maybe we don't drive as much, we'll get here. Nobody's ever described here. They just say we have to shame fossil fuel companies and, and maybe splash some paint on some uh, paintings and, and somehow this works. This is the thing that I think people are starting to recognize is that their whole story, it just doesn't even pass the simple sniff test. So we have to ask, are they that inept or are they being that misleading? One of these two things is true. And so that's when I watch this WF stuff, I'm like either their echo chamber so comprehensively good that they don't even know that they're telling bullshit to each other. <laughs> or they're running some kind of a scam on us and they have a different plan and they're not telling us what it is. Right. I think they all know that they're, they're speaking bullshit. I think they're all in on it. Yeah, um, I'm with you. I, it's really hard to discriminate between the Ponzi scheme uh, and the incompetence. And uh, both can be present at the same time. Would you agree? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. So, what what else is happening? Um, I've, I've, Chris, I've heard this uh, this analysis that you provided just now, just for the purpose of the audience. Um, uh, I've heard this again and again and again. It's not just um, I'm not in any way belittling what he's saying. What I'm what I'm suggesting is that I've heard many skilled analysts drawing the same conclusions, including the uh, kind of fundamental dialectic between whether this is incompetence or maleficence and the bias generally seems to fall on the maleficent side uh, for those uh, um, hard-edged uh, analysts like Chris who mm -hmm. have to make their daily living 
by calling things objectively and rigorous. And um, there's there's the what I hear is that the only way out of the woods current currently technically, or as Chris appropriately notes, it's all about the energy. Is um, these newer technologies involving um, thermonuclear uh, power, in which that the plants are able to be uh, reduced in size and print, uh, distributed more locally, and apparently a lot of the core technology involves liquid uh, liquid salts rather than um, more traditional uh, coolants. And that if you can solve, and apparently there's been significant progress on solution of the cooling problem uh, using these other salts, and that um, technically there is a solution space for the energy problem on the intermediate term horizon that involves going to a thermonuclear um, uh, solution space. Over. Chris, I'll let you, you respond to that. Well, um, there's between the, the incompetence versus malevolence. Uh, if, if we had, Robert, if we had people actively understanding the energy predicament and take the $114 billion that just magically flowed over to the Ukraine in the last few months and we put that towards what you're describing, I would have a very different outlook on things. So one of the, the byproducts of uranium mining in the United States has been an element called thorium. The United States at Oak Ridge in 1958 developed the first liquid fluoride uh, thorium reactor called the Lifter, and they work. They work great. Uh, the big problem with them, uh, at least from our standpoint back in the 50s and 60s, is as a byproduct, they don't make um, plutonium that goes boom. Uh, they don't make anything useful militarily. They consume the, the whole fuel cycle in a uranium-233 cycle. They're awesome. Uh, we have probably a thousand years of energy for at least electricity demand in the desert in, in Nevada that we could do this with. So guess what happened in the late 90s? Some people came, went to the National Archives, paid the $250 copying fee and walked off with a plan such as they were from the 50s and started building uh, these, went through the pilot program process. So that was China. Uh, India is also aggressively pursuing this nuclear technology. And these would be amazing if we could go down this path, but we're not doing that in this country. So I'm having a real hard time. And maybe Robert, you could think about this because um, you know, they stole military saying is once is an accident, twice is coincidence, mm -hmm. but three times is enemy action. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at things that are going on in terms of just how comprehensively bad, self-limiting or overall harmful to our nation's output here in the United States. And I put Europe, I put the whole five eyes. I think we're all struggling similarly. And I'm, I'm having a difficult time coming up with an organizing framework for that that doesn't resolve back to enemy action. Um, and it's some state like that somebody's some country, somebody has an interest in us being less robust than we currently are. Um, that's how I look because I can't, this can't be incompetence. Sooner or later, we'd have to get something accidentally right in this story. And um, I'm struggling to find that. Yeah. So now we uh, um, merge into the world of my colleagues at Epoch Times who are exquisitely sensitive to this topic, having um, been coming from the Falun Gong experience uh, um, and the well-documented practice of uh, organ harvesting it, it focuses them on. Um, I, I'm with you, Chris. I, it, it's, 
I try to maintain uh, incompetence as a one of the uh, multiple working hypotheses, but it's getting harder and harder and harder to keep it in the list. And uh, I'm, uh, I think those of us that are uh, awake to these issues see um, rampant compromise in the political sector in terms of decision-making that uh, appears uh, to be very consistent with this uh, dark hypothesis. But we also have the getting back on topic, the proven practical reality that although the Western press covers, for instance, Davos, which has just happened, this um, annual banal of uh, social Darwinism winners, uh, mm -hmm. the, the summer WEF meeting alternates between one or two cities in China. The, the WEF is, you, you spoke of, of importation of the Chinese solution. BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, um, etc., are as or more invested in the China solution than they are in, in a Western economic models. They, they literally, Larry Fink and BlackRock um, came to power by leveraging a unique position they were placed in by the administration during the 07 uh, financial crisis. And Chris, I know you know this in at a level of detail that I could only scratch. So I'm going to hold back and let you flesh that out a little bit more if you don't mind. But uh, we're in a position where a the prior financial crisis event was leveraged to huge advantage for a small number of, of financial firms that have now catapulted to um, transnational financial consortia that are so powerful that they control nation states, not the other way around. For instance, one of the things in traveling through Europe, so much like I have done over the last year, is my, uh, I have become very aware most European states have no uh, political latitude. They are so indebted to Brussels and in the Sunkinks that they, they, they have no um, operational flexibility politically. Their only flexibility is on social issues, which is why they emphasize social issues, because they have no options. Um, uh, I, I was blown away when I visited Ireland to find that I, the Irish are so deeply in debt, as are the Italians, that there's no hope in the future for them. They're completely owned. They will do what they have, what they're told to do by Brussels, which means by the central banks. Chris, can you can you feed off of that? Well, I, I, I can um, because this is something that's central to to the core work I've been doing for a long time is understanding the system of money. And all money systems have pros and cons. They enforce some behaviors, punish others. We have a debt based money system that has a really weird feature embedded with it. It's a math feature, which is that it needs to either constantly be expanding exponentially or, or it gets it gets unhappy. Right. Uh, the 
the 2008 crisis was literally almost a game ending moment. And it was because credit actually started to contract slightly. Fine. So we live in a world that credit has to constantly expand at an exponential rate. So what I mean by that is that um, if we started in the 1970s and we started debt at a unit of one, then it went to two, then to four, then to eight, 16, 32, went like that. The doubling time has been about eight years on average, just a little over. And so when you get to Europe, you mentioned, well, yeah, look at all this money that, that you know, Ireland owes. They, they're, what can they do? But Ireland owes to Spain, who owes money to Italy, who owes money to Germany, who owes money to France. And when you add it all up, everybody owes everybody. There is no, there is no way for that to resolve if you understand that money is just, again, it's a social construct and, and money is a claim on stuff. Okay, claim on what? Well, goods and services. Okay, what's that? Well, you know, cars, back rubs, legal services, you know meals. So when you look at where we are in the debt story, Robert, it, it's, it's expanding, expanding, expanding. And again, very childishly, nobody's bothered at the Federal Reserve, the ECB to answer this simple question, which is, well, it, does it expand forever? And if so, how can it expand at twice the rate of the underlying economy? So economic growth since 1970 has been averaging about three-ish percent on a real basis, but debts have been expanding at close to nine. How does that work? Well, we've all just been pretending it's going to somehow pencil out, but ultimately the economy and the money system, they have to have some sort of relationship to each other. So I've always wondered when we, when we get to talk about that, well, we need a great reset. We kind of do. Um, and so uh, the point is that we had a system that didn't have adults in charge and we just rather childishly ran up the system that became completely dependent on the idea that we were going to spend it twice the that we were actually uh, growing our income. Obviously, you have a math problem. As an individual, that would be true. As a company, that would be true. It's no less true when you put everybody in and call it a nation. So we're really actually at a very difficult moment here, economically speaking. I don't envy anybody who's actually in the role of trying to head up the ECB, the Bank of Japan, um, any of the major banks, because they have a serious math problem on their hands. On the one side, they face literally the destruction of the financial system if they allow deflation to take root and really, really get romping. On the other hand, they face uh, that galloping inflation that they can't contain. And that's that we're kind of stuck between those, those two extremes right now. I honestly don't know what they do, which is why when people say, you know, what do you think about central bank digital currencies? I say they're a fate accompli because they're going to have to, if you, if you are in charge of a system and you know that it doesn't have a resolvable conclusion and you would be not doing your fiduciary or social duties if you didn't have a backup plan for that. You can't, the currency systems explode. That's called Zimbabwe. That's called um, Venezuela. It's a horrible moment. But when reserve currencies go bad, oh my goodness, uh, multiply those businesses by whole numbers. So I actually think that we've gotten ourselves into a real pickle. Nobody wants to have the honest conversation at the higher levels. So we get stuff that, you know, it's because climate change and and we need a great reset and all that other stuff. But listen, you just peer under the covers a little bit. We have a giant math problem that we're not talking about. And so I Chris, think that's the root of this. Chris, is that the answer then for are is this a bread and circus uh, situation we're in right now where um, uh, discussions of um, stakeholder capitalism and uh, social credit systems and uh, ESG scores are just a distraction. Is this is this some sort of uh, elaborate um, shell game 
in which we're hiding the pee through all these distractions for the likes of, of most of us while um, failing to confront or um, scheming to exploit the situation in a way that will allow the, um, the I like to call them the overlords, to maintain control as they transition through the inevitable crisis. I think, I think that's, I think, yes. Um, when you get to the level of indebtedness where you can pretty easily not, this isn't like super high level math where you can go, oh, that's never going to be paid back. Um, then the question really resolves down to this, which is who's going to eat the losses? Now, the right. people in who's, charge. Who's the, I, think, I think the slang is who's the bag holder? Yep. Yep. And, uh, and the other axiom is uh, if, you, you know, if you've been at the card table 30 minutes and you don't know who the sucker is, it's you. Um, uh-huh. Right. So uh, listen, I can, this is very simple. We saw back in 2007 or 8, Kotlikoff and Rogoff, a couple of economists who, who actually were, were busy adding the numbers up. They said, for the United States, when you add debts plus liabilities, liabilities are the things like under or unfunded pensions, Medicare, Social Security, et cetera. Back almost 10 years ago, they said the net present value of the United States under those conditions where you say, hey, we have to pay all this stuff back was minus 200 trillion. Now, a net present value calculation says and answers this question, how much money would we have to have in the bank earning interest in order for us to have a zero in this story? So obviously, when you're 200 trillion in the hole, what do you do? Well, you keep digging. But beyond that, it's really it's that simple. Who's going to eat the losses? Oh, Federal Reserve has already shown that they are totally happy to throw a younger generation under the bus to preserve an older generation, right? They did that with the mortgage-backed security purchasing to make houses go up in price. Now, that only obviously serves people who already have houses. It really suffers for those who are trying to consider starting a household. Uh, they wanted to drive stock prices up. That really, you know, they accomplished that. Okay, the, the people holding and the entities already holding the stocks were the winners in that story. So the Federal Reserve has clearly said, and bankers are very good at this, they'll pick winners and losers, but they're willing to sacrifice the health of the country and the younger generations to achieve that. When the dust settles, uh, you'll owe nothing, and hopefully you're happy about it, right? That's, but that's where this is going. Right. And, and I, you, you, when we had dinner many months ago, you went even further with some of these discussions. You spoke about some impend financial threshold events. Um, uh, do you want to talk about that at all? Well, there's so many things just up in the air right now. Um, you know, it, we've had so many shocks this past 12 months that I'm surprised that we're still skating past them. We had the guilt market under the pension schemes in the UK completely freeze and blow up. They had a trillion and a half dollar margin call that somehow the Bank of England managed to, to sort of paper over for a little while. We have the Bank of England attempting yield curve control, which is like, uh oh, that means they're going to start printing like crazy. And they've already been printing like crazy. Uh, the, we can feel this. My model for this is, you know, you can hear the rivets popping. You know, there's like, how long can this hold together? And so I do believe that the bread and circus is there to distract us while they, whoever they are, are busy trying to staple together some response to this, which includes some combination of central bank digital currencies, controlling populations, giving us digital fences that we somehow, you know, um, keep us in. Because this could, this could be a very difficult situation. How would you control this? What, what, what even do um, a circumstance like this? 
I, I, Chris, I got to say again from my travels, and um, the you know just did big lectures in Stockholm, uh, and also the number of people, including Nigel Farage in the UK. There is an anger building now that I fear is um, getting. You talked about the rivets popping. There, there is social anger right now. And in a trigger point appears to be centered on the mismanagement of the COVID crisis. But uh, I, I think. Your, your phone went on, your speaker went on mute there, Robert. Yeah, I was going to say, I think we lost him. I feel like um, things, things are getting a little dicey there. People are angry. And they're not sure yet where to direct their anger, but they know they're angry. And uh, I think that my, my, my intuition is that we're approaching a, a, a nexus in some way that may not be manageable. Um, uh, I, I don't know what your thoughts are about that, but that's, that's my, my sense from moving about uh, in these various communities and in the COVID crisis, it could well be the trigger. And what was the, how do you detect that anger? How was that showing up? Um, I see it in social media now. I see it in um, people's discussions among each other. There's a, uh, again and again and again, a sense of unease, of uh, restless, um, uh, antagonism that's seeking some something to vent itself against uh it it seems to be seeking uh you know there's the all of this going on i'm very sensitive to what's going on on twitter for obvious reasons uh, and in what's happened with uh musk i hear that what i hear from colleagues is that musk didn't know what he was getting into and now he's not sure. He's kind of got it by the table. Um, now we mm-hmm. now we learn that Palantir has been uh, manipulating uh, Europe through algorithmic means. Um, it's I it's it, it's intuitive. It it's my sense is a chain tone and conversation as as I'm moving through these different communities that are admittedly biased because it's I'm I'm the, the COVID crisis world is what's a re- revolves around me but I um that's why I'm asking for feedback from you over interesting I, I live for the anecdotes because um this is where we always find the, the story turning first we saw recently in France you know a million people the France are very prone to, to you know protesting and restedness but you know, France was starting to resolve the question of who's going to eat the losses by saying, well, we can't really afford retirement, so we're going to bump the retirement age a couple of years. Here in the U.S., the Congressional Budget Office just released a report that said, I found it shocking, that the United States um, OASI, the, the, the Old Age Survivors Trust Fund, Social Security, is going to be completely tapped out by 2033. Um, that's practically tomorrow. And the only way to resolve that is to either cut benefits to retirees or raise taxes on um, existing workers from 12.6 to 17.5%. 
uh, again. So wow. that's big, yeah, yeah, that's a huge deal. We so that, have, and we have these paradoxical um, deficits in labor uh, that that make sense at all, and yet everybody is reporting them. Uh, people cannot get skilled labor. Um, as I travel to airports, their wastelands, the the air travel system seems to be coming apart at the seams. Uh, it just because I feel like, like we've incentivized everywhere. people. Things are the the was it Chinua Chibi's book? Uh, things fall apart. Uh, it, it feels like things are just um, the wheels are coming off, and and it it you know I, I feel like I'm being fatalistic in saying this, but something's something's not good here, and um well, and I. I keep saying these these people that are saying getting back to the WEF that are telling us that they have the skill sets to um, guide us into this brave new world that they envision this transhumanist fourth industrial revolution uh, over the last three years have shown gross incompetence and I I uh, just. Again and again and again, I'm having these conversations with very well-read, intelligent people um, that are uh, very concerned. You mentioned France. Uh, I, I was speaking with uh, what used to be one of the top French, French scientists yesterday. She was uh, She's basically been run out uh, because of her objections about the jab. She told me that the um, healthcare workers that had been um, furloughed because they wouldn't take the jab that I met in Massey, France a year ago are still unemployed. They, they will not uh, provide jobs. They will not, they cannot obtain work because they have been unjabbed and their suicide is now starting to take a toll. They, they are, they have, they're, the, the, they, they have nothing. They have no support. This I hear this again and again. I hear no support for the. It's it's as if, um, we've already crossed that threshold, where, um, socially, we've decided that there's a significant number of people that uh, just need to be discarded. They they ha they they don't provide sufficient merit to society, sufficient value. I I just I'm. I'm sorry to get so dark, but as as I, you know, when I when I really confront what I'm seeing uh, as I travel, uh, I um, it's hard for me, even though I try to find the silver lining, to see it right now. Over. Well, I think I could just jump in. I've 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 been enjoying this conversation, but that you guys have been Did I lose you? engaged. In... Oops. Nope. Can you hear us? Can you hear me, Robert? I know Chris is on mute. I, I can hear you. Okay. So I've been enjoying the conversation, so, and I would just add, Chris, please, it does please feel... give me uh, some modicum of of, uh, of silver lining. I'm, I'm desperate for it. <laughs> uh, well, so 
let, let's first up um, part of the silver lining is I think we've hit peak Davos um, and I think they've overplayed their hand. So this overplaying the hand thing is, is pretty typical at tops, right? Bulls always burst because something went a little too far and suddenly it was revealed that the emperor had no clothes. And so uh, I've got lots of feedback from my networks that people who did go to Davos noted that it was poorly attended and they didn't, there's a lot of blowback now. And, you know, they felt compelled to hire up 5,000 troops because unlike Gaddafi and Saddam, those reviled dictators that can't walk amongst their own people. Um, and uh, you could feel that story has turned a bit. So I think we're past peak Davos at this point in time. That's the good news. Bad news is those people play dirty. And so I'm a little worried about what act two is going to be because they, they will not just say, yeah, I guess we got this a little wrong and, um, people didn't like our plans. They'll, they'll try something new. We, we know they will. Um, so there's that. And the second thing is, it is time, actually, to admit that there were a lot of things that were really broken. Can we just admit that our medical system, it wasn't just the COVID revealed a little bad stuff. To me, it revealed just how comprehensively broken the whole thing was top to bottom. And that it wasn't uh, that good doctors, good nurses, good carers were often chewed up and spit out by the system that reviled them or had no use for them. Uh, and we saw that uh, the system was there to make money, not to heal. And we see a lot of these things that I think need fixing. The NIH is obviously corrupt, uh, CDC, but so is the Federal Reserve. So I think the silver lining is this is the moment in time when we get to rewrite this narrative. And it's going to really possibly be disruptive and maybe a little expensive in a lot of ways. But I think we get to get our agency back in this whole story. And... If I take what they want from me, the whole top-down Davos crowd, transhumanist people, fundamentally they want me to be disorganized, distracted, afraid, feeling powerless, um, that everything's just sort of inevitable and I have no role to play in any of that. And they just want me to basically be that battery in the matrix, like you know, live your life, pay your taxes and die, right? Um, and, and so this is an opportunity for people, I think, are up to say, oh, hold on. Who actually has the power in this story? Who is writing the narrative? Who, who's the true creators in this? And so I actually am hopeful that we will get something like education back on track and science back on track and farming back on track. But they have to be so different than the models that we've come up through. And they can't be about money. Can't be about money, 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 money. Money's an abstraction, but we've elevated it to this godlike place where it controls us. Time to get some of that control back in our lives. So I, I'm actually... I love the people I've got to meet, you know, Laura, yourself, Robert, everybody. I see a lot of my, my followers and friend, f friends on this uh, list right here in front of us now. I've gotten to meet incredible people, and I'm very hopeful that um, these, that good, high-integrity people are starting to gather together. And we're finally saying enough, enough of the rackets, enough of this crap. Um, and so that part gives me hope. Well, no, no doubt we have a huge opportunity right now to reform what's happened and COVID allowed us to peel back the layers and expose a lot Chris, of the corruption. when we corruption. had time together in the past, you also spoke about intentional communities and some of your visions around that. And then, of course, there's the what can we do practically? My sense is one of those things is to the extent that you can get out of debt. You want, hey, can you talk about any of that? Or before you do that, um, Chris, Robert, can you hear me at all? Hmm. That's weird. You can hear um, me, right? I can hear you. Okay. I assume other people can, because I can. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Chris, Did did so you didn't hear me. Um, no, I, I heard you, Robert. It seems that you can't hear Laura, so I'm going to have to play middleman here. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, 
so Laura, did you have something to say there? Uh, I, well, I was just going to finish my thought and say, you know, we clearly have a tremendous amount of opportunity right now to, um, peel, you know, we peel back the layers, expose what's happening. I think we still have more layers to peel back. We have a lot of opportunity. Um, and I was going to wrap it up, but I think let's, why don't you answer Robert's question and then, and then we'll start to wind down. Okay, well, great. So, well, this is my life's work. We actually have, uh, coincidentally, we have a, a seminar this weekend, which just dives deep into this exact subject. And this is our yearly peak prosperity planning seminar. It's virtual. And, um, and the idea behind it is to parse through all of this stuff and then get to the, well, what should I do? Now, everybody has a different approach to this, but I believe, and the mission of, of my work is, uh, there's tough times coming. I can't possibly predict what they're going to be necessarily in detail because it's a chaotic, complex system. So things will do what they're going to do. But I can be prepared for that by being as resilient as I can be. And so um, I work with people to build up eight forms of capital. So financial capital, if you have financial capital, great. I got a whole story about why you don't want to have all your money tied up in this tertiary paper promise ticket money system. And you would want to have hard assets and all, there's a whole story around that. Um, as well as, uh, you know, tax advantage strategies, da, da, da. But financial capital is just one component. And so there's also material capital. A lot of times people hear this story and they go, oh, I should prepare. And they start thinking prepper stuff. I need beans. I need bullets. Sure, get those. Um, but it goes way beyond that. And uh, getting your homestead resilient and prepared with gardens and greenhouses and whatever you can do if you have a home where you can do things like that. Absolutely. So you want your material capital there to be supportive of whatever might come. Living capital, highly important. You know, that's you, the health of your own body uh, as well. It's the health of the soil outside my, my house and in my garden and all of that and the health of the animals that we keep here. So uh, Evie and myself, our, our solution to all of this, you know, Robert, to cut to the chase, when we parsed through this, we ended up buying, much like yourself, we, we got a place with a bunch of acreage. We got three cows. We got a bunch of chickens, a few cats, dogs, um, and, and a lot of trees. Because when I look into the future, I think energy is everything. And so I think... Uh, owning land with trees on it is a, is an expression of hard assets that makes a lot of sense to me. If you saw that, uh, if you saw that in um, Germany, a, a cord of wood went from basically uh, around two hundred dollars for a cord to about two thousand. Is uh, is the crisis unfolded there? Uh, you'll under. I mean, this just makes sense that we're going to go back to trees again at some point. Um, but out of all of these, social capital very important. The most important one is your emotional and your spiritual capital. And I mean, you could be rich in all these other things, but if you don't have that uh, stability when the, when the storm comes and you just default into reactivity or tunnel vision, none of the rest really matters. So, so we spend a lot of time parsing through all these different forms of capital. And, and as a community, that's how we come together and we get better at this. So I'm working hard on my intentional uh, neighborhood is probably the best way to put it here where I live. And then we have a virtual community as well where Thanks to the internet, we can still commune with amazing people from all around the world who frankly do things that inspire me every day. People are just doing incredibly beautiful, wonderful things, build their resilience and those of their communities. So, so that's my response to all of this. I can't control that the Federal Reserve is go back to printing and pivot and do that, but I can control how I'm, how I'm positioned um, fighting for that. I can't control that they seem to want to like, you know, destroy the food system, but I can control um, how much food I actually can lay my hand in, in directly out of my yard or in my local community. So that's been my response to all of this. Uh, and so, um, frankly, I went towards it all because I was a little concerned. So let's say that's the stick in the story. But now that I'm here, 
I live surrounded by beauty. I love the cadence and rhythm of, of being outdoors and, and growing things. I love the new connections I've made socially. So I would actually run towards this uh, if I could talk to my older self uh, back a while ago, because this is the carrot. Like this is actually a better life. So I do think there's a better life out of all of this. I really do. And, and um, uh, probably I feel like I'm slinging hash at breakfast for a story that won't be written until the last aperitif is down to two in the morning. Um, and that's way beyond my lifetime, but I'm trying to set up the structures so I leave something good behind for whoever's, um, you know, in charge of the next part of the story. Well, I think that's vitally important and it's vitally important to um, build your community, as you said. And I think it's the communities um, that are, that with people like you and the people that are on this call that are um, the ones. I that assume will be Laura is talking. And yeah. I that's correct. Okay. So why don't, why don't we let Robert know that, that um, I would love to have both of you just share um, a, a parting thought on the world economic forum and um, where you see the best path moving forward here for the folks that are listening to this. And then we'll close it out. Robert, Laura, would like you to um, have a, uh, any parting thoughts on the WEF. And uh, uh, then we'll go to me and we'll close it out. Perfect. Uh, I was hoping you would uh, broker that because it's getting about that time. Uh, parting thoughts on the WEF. Uh, for, for those who haven't um, spent the time to try to understand what what they're talking about and what they're doing. Um, I think it is worth Klaus's, Klaus's book on the great reset is grossly naive, but buying it and reading it will give you a good sense of, of the level at which these people are operating and allowing yourself to think about what has happened over the last three years and what they are attempting to implement in the form of Agenda 2030, the vaccine passports, the international health regulations, uh, the various United Nations policies, um, the fact that uh, the WEF is the godfather of the G20. When you hear these announcements coming out of the G20, such as they all endorse um, digital vaccine passports and travel restrictions, that's, that's a product of the World Economic Forum, as is the Young Leaders Training Program, which notoriously infiltrated the Canadian cabinet, uh, the Canadian leadership, Justin Trudeau, Krista Friedland, um, uh, um, Ardennes, uh, and so many others are products of this five-year training program that's really an indoctrination program run by the World Economic Forum. And uh, now we're hearing the talk that um, the current leadership in the White House, both president and vice president, are being pushed aside in favor of a new candidate, uh, ostensibly to be run for president, Mr. Gavin Newsom, who is also a WEF young leader trainee. I argue that these people are serving a organization that's not the United States, a foreign organization, and they should be asked to rec to register as foreign agents. They're, these are these people have been trained by through this five year training program and indoctrinated to support and serve 
the interests of this trade organization of the thousand largest companies in the world. And uh, if if you uh, remain asleep, um, you it, this will be done to you and to your children. And uh, you can see how that plays by looking at what's happened in Canada, looking at what's happened in New Zealand and in Australia. Functionally, Canada and New Zealand are now client states without firing a shot of the World Economic Forum. And, I've, and I'm, I don't think this is hyperbole. I think the United States is right on the threshold of becoming another one. And uh, I think it's time uh, to act or not. Uh, if you choose that you want to live in this world and just be passive, uh, that's the world that you and your children are going to be encountering for the next uh, few decades. So those are my closing thoughts. Uh, please pay attention. Uh, it is kind of, as Chris points out, we are coming up to some uh, a nexus, a financial nexus. And uh, these folks uh, don't play nice. And just because they've had a setback and you've got some black eyes over the last three years doesn't mean that they're just going to go crawl in a hole and, and uh, go hide. So I'll close with that. Sorry, it's not a very positive thing. Um, again, I invite all of you to walk with us to resist and fight um, and to learn the weapons of modern warfare, uh, which are not kinetic anymore. They're the weapons of information and thought and uh, you can you can play that game too if you learn how it's played. Over. I completely agree with all of that, and I, I want to uh, riff off that last piece of the statement, which is WF has power because we allow them to have power. And the first step in reclaiming our individual power is to understand what the tricks and the tools are. So I didn't ever intend to, but this year I spent a lot of time unpacking what the nudge units were up to and how the psychologists went about experimenting on which were the most you know, effective, um, let's say amygdala buttons they could push, right? They went down into our emotional centers and used shame, humiliation, uh, ostracization, all these really core routines to control people and get them to something. In this case, take a vaccine or you know, submit to lockdowns and things like that. So when I saw the weaponization of military grade psyops against our own people, it made me feel like, well, you know, I've read this store because I read uh, Naomi Klein's um, Disaster Capitalism, right? It, it's just, it, I, I know the model. I've seen it's now being run on our own country. So good news. I now know what it feels like to be in some smaller country that, that had a, an empire turn on it. I think the empire's turned on itself. That is a bad sign. And so that usually is, means you're closer to the end of that empire story than the beginning. And I'm a little worried that, you know, we could have a, a fairly abrupt empire, as it were. And so that's how I'm interpreting all of this right now. That's why I have um, live on a farm, as it were, because I'm trying to control what I can. I don't know how else to parse it at this point in time. There's just so many things happening. And, and my framing for this is I think that uh, the WEF is misguided in the how they're going about things. I think the what is appropriate. I think the what is we need to have some conversations about how much energy is left and how we'd like to use it to build out the next energy infrastructure and what's realistic. And because we're not having that conversation every day that goes by shrinks down our solution set a little bit. And eventually we go past a point where we no longer have what we need to sustain the complexity we need to even do anything that we would love to do. So, you know, we get to a permanent skinnying or simplification point. That's what I'm worried about. Um, and I do think the WEF for, for all of its power is uh, 
hopelessly naive and or um, doesn't really appreciate the complexity of what they're attempting to do here all at once. And what I object to most is that they've gone for a method of tearing everything else down with the faith that they're going to be able to implement this brand new thing all at once. That's like trying to stitch together a, a, a parachute on the way down, you know, um, <laughs> it's not a, not a good plan. So, so that's why I, I'm very worried about their plans. I think they are both corrupt and naive and equal measures of both. And so that's how I interpret them here. So my advice, such as it is, it's free. So take it for all it's worth is <laughs> to become resilient and do what you can to stand up, not consent to their PSYOP program anymore and help other people break out of that mindset because that's how we that's how we get this story back on the right track well um first of all thank you so much to both of the doctors for for joining this conversation you actually it was really me just sitting on the sidelines enjoying the conversation but um and learning quite a bit from both of you so thank you so much for that um i agree with with both of you i tend to be um a little bit more hopeful though i hope that we have we're starting to see many many people in the millions across the world um, becoming aware of, of the dangers of organizations like the World Economic Forum and the World Health Organization and uh, the UN and others, and some of the policies that they're proposing and putting together. Um, and I do think that with enough people coming together and uh, acting upon what you guys have both said in terms of becoming resilient, I do think that we'll start to see you know, a change in the trajectory of what's happening in the world. I certainly hope that we will, because God help us all if uh, Gavin Newsom becomes known. We know here in California the damage that he's capable of doing. We also know that he's simply a tool. Um, he's a pawn that's being used. He's not necessarily driving these um, and creating this 100% on his own. Uh, but certainly a scary proposition to have him sitting as the president of the United States at some point. Um, so thank you, everyone, for joining this evening. Uh, Dr. Martinson, Dr. Malone, you guys are fantastic as always. Hey, I may be the only one left. I guess we're going to close this out. This is Robert. Um... <laughs> <laughs> well, Laura was in there, Robert. I don't oh, know why sorry. you can't hear her, but, but she was closing up beautifully. She said wonderful things about you. And uh... <laughs> Let him know we're going to get technical All right, issues. So uh, until we meet again, Chris, uh, thank you so much. And uh, thank you. I, I've learned from you, and I look forward to learning more. Bye-bye. Same here. Same here. Thanks, thank everyone. You. Have a great evening. All right. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye, everyone.